Hey everybody, this is Mike. I am reporting from the prairie. I'm out here doing uh, pollinator surveys, looking for bumblebees and butterflies mainly. Um, you know, so this is why I am not uh, with Megan on this bonus episode. Um, I'm out here working in the prairie. Um, not to imply that Megan isn't working. She is also working as a co as a host on the Prairie Pod. A couple of things I wanted to pass along quickly. Number one, get out here. Get into the prairie. It is so nice out here right now. Oh, did you hear that? That was the dick sizzle right behind me. Um, secondly, I want to encourage you to support the Minnesota Non-Game Wildlife Program. An amazing bunch of people, very passionate, very hardworking, and critical for prairie conservation in Minnesota. So uh, to do that, go to the Minnesota Non-Game Wildlife web website and donate there or donate on your state tax returns. Enjoy the rest of the episode and remember, get out of here. Bye-bye. Hey, welcome back to the Prairie Pod. I know you thought it was over, but it's not over. We're still going. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Sorry for yelling in my microphone. I just can't help myself because we are offering you not one, but two bonus episodes of the Prairie Pod this season. That's right. We wish that we could be on the prairie with you. That would be more majestic and beautiful. And let's face it, more fun for all of us. But we wanted to make sure that we had the learning train continue. I don't even know what a learning train is. Woo woo, learning train. Like, we're going through it. So we have brought our normal Prairie and Pollinator Restoration Field Day team together, and we're going to offer you this virtual field day. So we have tons of guests on the Prairie Pod. Let's just go ahead and round robin through all these wonderful people who are going to share some awesome knowledge with you today. Paul. Good morning, I'm Paul Charland, with U a fire management specialist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Interior Region 3, and I'm also a co-coordinator for the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative. Nice. Nina. Well, hello. This is Nina Hill. Um, I'm calling in from Fargo, North Dakota, and I work here with the Nature Conservancy as Science Fellow. Nice. Ian. Hey, I'm Ian Lane, and I am a PhD candidate in the Caribou Native Bee Lab. Uh, I study landscapes and prairie restorations and how they affect bee communities. Ian, what's a caribou? A caribou is an advisor who helps me become a scientist. <laughs> so he's a real-life person. He's a real he is. Dr. Dan Caribou is his name. He is. His whole name. Yeah. Gina. Hi, I'm Gina. I work with the Minnesota DNR on the Legacy Fund Restoration Evaluation Program. So as you can see, all good things happen with partnership. And I'm biased here because this is the Prairie Pod, but the best things happen with Prairie Partnerships, people. That's right. Alliteration is a great way to start off our virtual field day. <laughs> so thank you, first of all, to all of our listeners, because this episode wouldn't be possible without you. We reached out to you. We asked you what your questions were. And then this is going to be a two-series podcast where we answer those questions. So we broke them up into groups. You guys asked the best questions. So this episode today is going to be on reconstruction planning, establishment, cost, and climate change. I know, the big one, climate change. 
We're going to do our very best to answer each question in 10 minutes or less. And you know how I like to talk, so this is going to be a real struggle for Megan Benich today. But we're going to try to do it because um, we just want to get you answers and we want to get them to you fast, right? There's nothing worse than like waiting for your question to be answered. Okay, we're going to jump right in with the establishment part of this. And here we go. Ian? Okay, so Megan, how do you balance the instant gratification factor for a landowner by having enough species that will bloom early in the restoration process versus ensuring that the restoration has enough species to remain diverse in say 10 years? So I love this question because it's something that I think I've struggled with throughout my whole career, right? Like there's this idea that we want this insta prairie. Like we want it to be like cup of ramen. You put it in the microwave, you add a little water and boom, you got a prairie people. And that is just not how prairie works. It is not ramen. It is an amazing, delicious Italian pasta. I really should have eaten before we recorded this podcast. <laughs> that should have happened. But it is, it's this amazing complex thing. So I'm gonna use, I'm gonna recycle an analogy here. You wouldn't plant a tree seedling and expect to have an old growth forest in the next year, right? You wouldn't. And the same is true with prairie. Even though you might see cover when you plant it, we need to start recalibrating the way we think about how prairies work and how prairie reconstructions work. So you're not gonna love this, but the answer for how do you balance is really starting to reshape how much patience you have and how much time you have. You need to give it time and patience. So now let's break it down. Okay, I really think this is kind of two different questions. So one's about early showiness and the second's about how do I maintain diversity? These two things actually go together. So hashtag winning over here. So that's good. The best thing you can do is stack the deck. So if you want something that's showy or that makes it look like you actually planted something, put in species that are early successional or pioneer prairie species and that are gonna show up and grow in your first year. So things like partridge pea, Canada wild rye, black-eyed Susan, bergamot, yellow coneflower, yarrow, hoary vervain, milkweed. That's just for you, Ian. I'll put in some milkweed because <laughs> it grows real quick. Yeah. But there's a challenge here, right? If you put in all of these showy things, the biggest mistake that I see people make is they put these things in really heavy so that their planting is just full of all of these early successional pioneer species right away. And they're like, wow, this thing looks great. But the problem is for a lot of those species like rye and black-eyed Susan and bergamot and yellow coneflower, those things can easily dominate your later successional species or your climax prairie species. So if you put in too much of them, while it might look showy early on, it's really not gonna look great in the long term, which is exactly what this person's asking about. So you wanna make sure, um, our friend Karen Jokola over at the Xerces Society, she says no more than one to two ounces per acre or less of black-eyed Susan and bergamot. And then I think I usually put in no more than a pound of Canada wild rye. And I think even that is too much. So I shoot for about a half pound and you're gonna get plenty of it in your planting. So you also wanna make sure that if you're going for long-term diversity, right? That you fulfill the guilds. Fulfill the guilds, that's important. Right, Ian? Yeah, definitely. 
Ian, I was expecting for you to drop some like amazing knowledge on me. You know, I was thinking about it and I didn't want to interrupt you. Like I didn't want to talk over you. Okay, go ahead. That was very gentlemanly. Wow. I'm really thank you. Okay, drop some knowledge on our on our listeners. Well, the thing I was thinking about when you were talking about, you know, not having these annuals or these quick growing perennials dominate was just like in remnants how you have this balance. You know, I don't walk into kind of this really nice quality remnant that maybe the Nature Conservancy or whoever is taking care of and see these giant fields of, of black eyed Susans, right? It's had so much time, like you were saying, to kind of adjust and the individuals move around, they find the places they like, um, and opportunities for them arise and disappear. And so it, when I walk through these like kind of these, cl these classical remnant prairies, it seems like everything's in balance. And it just takes time for our restorations to come into balance too. Just like you said, you know, it's, it's, it's this kind of long process that we're eager to see get to the end, but it does need to go through some of these cycles where some things are doing great, some things are not doing great, but it, it all shifts around based on the weather. So yeah, I, I was thinking a little bit about that when you were kind of talking about these different factors. Well, I love that you said weather. Like, that's a really important thing to think about. I think sometimes we definitely have bias. I have my own biases. If I could see a prairie with lead plant and purple prairie clover and all drop seed, I'd probably be happy. I'd be like, look at that. That's beautiful. It's amazing. Because those are my favorite species. But really, there's going to be different weather patterns that favor those species in some years and don't in others. And so we need to give the prairie space and room to grow. Think about it like... Uh, raising kids, okay? <laughs> this is gonna be a great analogy, I just know it. So like when you have a baby, congratulations Ian, uh, when you have a baby, like you wanna give them more care, you wanna nurture them. When your prairie is young, it's your it's your child. You wanna, you really wanna get in there and you wanna help it and give it all the tools it needs to succeed. But sometimes the best thing you can do is let that baby fall on its butt and wait and see how it gets itself back up like pulls itself back up. This is solid parenting advice for Megan Patch, <laughs> who has no children. You're welcome, parents. So, so if my kids screwed up, I can blame you, right? Yeah. Be like, I listened to this episode of the Prairie Pod. She told me how to do it. And now everything's ruined. <laughs> oh, gosh. But really, it's kind of the analogy I'm trying to give you is this idea that Yes, you need to give your prairie the tools to succeed. And in this case, and every case, it's diversity. You need to make sure that you fulfill these guilds, give the prairie diversity, because diversity gives rise to diversity in the long term. And not just for plants, but also for other things like insects. If you have more diversity, then you bring in more diversity in your wildlife. And so it's really important that you start with that foundation. That's the right tool that you're giving your baby prairie. And then you also, as it's growing and becoming a teenager and adult, you need to step back and give it the time and space to use those tools to best effect. Nature is more resilient than we give it credit for. And prairie plants definitely know what to do if you give them the right foundation to do it. So if, if someone were to say like, I'd rather have like a giant field of black eyed Susans than a giant field of, you know, first year weeds, what would you say to that? I would say, uh, okay, I forgot I was on a podcast. <laughs> things. 
Okay, what I would say is, I think that's normal in real life. I was making jokes, but I, I think it's normal to want that color, to want it to look good. And especially if you're working with landowners or on a landowner's property, I'm a landowner. I get frustrated when my planting looks like it's mostly foxtail. I want those flowers and I want them right now, people. I think the best thing that you can do is just say that those early weeds are providing really good wildlife food. We don't give foxtail enough credit for how delicious it is. We don't give ragweed enough credit for how delicious it is to our upland wildlife. And they're really doing an important job for the prairie. So they're essentially helping with your soil structure. They're helping mop up nitrogen. They're doing all kinds of things. And they're also providing some shade for some of your prairie plants, which is great. So I think people just need to realize that weeds are gonna be part of your prairie and that if you gave it diversity, then the weeds are going to drop out through time. That's what I would say, Ian. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Just like the black eyed Susans will probably drop out or at least become less abundant over time. They will, depending on how heavy you seeded them and how, like, the thing that you're trying to prevent, it's balance, right? It's diversity and balance. You're trying to prevent planting so much black-eyed Susan that it outcompetes everything else and doesn't give it a chance to establish or even grow. So you want to make sure that you're kind of reducing some of that shade competition. But yeah, balance, diversity, put in some showy things, but make sure that you, that's not the only thing that you put in and that even though you're stacking the deck, that you don't put those in at such a high rate that you've limited yourself for that long-term diversity. That's the sum. All right, let's move on to question number two. This is our question, what plants and the layout of said plants would offer the best long-term support for all pollinators? Well, that's a big one because we know that all pollinators includes thousands of different species with different biologies and needs, but I'm stealing Ian's thunder. Okay, and there's a second part to this question. What plant species should I be including in my, in my reconstructions that bees really need? They said like, but I like bees really need including egg or larval host plants? Yeah, so this is um, a lot of different questions, but embedded in there are some really um, kind of common questions uh, that we get um, when people ask about bees and other pollinators. So the first thing I really want to hammer is just that grass is an important part of all of this. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure for people to support pollinators and that often takes the form of seed mixes that are more and more forb dominated. Um, and I just want to make sure that in the midst of all that, we recognize that grasses are incredibly important for, for diversity and to pollinators too. So um, grasses often serve as nesting habitat for things like bumblebees, uh, clump forming grasses, bunch grasses, produce all this thatch that a lot of species of bumblebees will use and form into their nests. So they, they nest above ground, unlike a lot of the other types of bumblebees, and grass is part of their habitat. And so there's other types of animals that we would consider pollinators, like hoverflies, whose larvae are predaceous on things like aphids. And you know aphids use all sorts of plants, including and especially grasses. So they need multiple kinds of animals and plants in their habitat to survive, to become that pollinator. So grasses are there supporting a lot of pollinators 
in their different life cycles and different things other than just food. So um, it's important we not just focus on flowers when we talk about um, the types of plants that pollinators need. Amen, um, brother. I'm so glad that you mentioned grasses. I just want to slip something in here really quick. And you said it, but I want to make sure that people heard what you said. It's not just about including just grass, like as a thing, it's about the diversity of grass. And Ian said that. So if you're just planting the same big five that you've always planted, you are not fulfilling your grass guilt. So you can't just plant Indian grass, big blue, side oats, little blue, and switch and be like, woo, it's a prairie. Like that's not how it works. You need to make sure you have cool season natives and those warm season natives. And you also need to limit things that are gonna be super aggressive and that are gonna dominate and create these walls of grass in your prairie, like big blue stem and Indian grass. Those should be seeded at no more than 1%. So it's not just about having grass, it's about making sure you have lots of different species of grass because all those different species are used differently by insects. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And different grasses do, diff do better or worse in different climatic years too so if it's a really wet year maybe some grasses are doing better so you have that kind of resilience too and that insects will always have some host even if they're themselves really generalized so yeah diversity is key um, to all of this like you said before um, and so moving past grasses um, to kind of the forbs I really want to I really want to hammer two species specifically um, and those are golden alexanders, which are plants in the genus Zizia, and purple prairie clover, Dahlia purpurea. They're both species that attract not only a high abundance of bees, they attract a high diversity of them as well. And that's important, that distinction is important because you can get some plants that are very attractive to certain species. And I'll give you an example. So like Menarda fistulosa, which is bee balm, is really attractive. And people always, always talk about it as this bumblebee magnet in the mid-season. And it is. And it's really great at attracting bumblebees. But it it doesn't have this really huge profile of species that visited outside of bumblebees. There are some, but they don't attract nearly the diversity of, of these first two I mentioned. And so I just really wanted to throw those two species out there as kind of a starting point and where people can kind of build off of that based on their site and the kinds of um, things that are available to them and seed mixes. So um, two, besides Monarda, I wanted to point out that um, one of the other really common species, a yellow coneflower, Vertibida pinnata, is really attractive to longhorn bees. They're these specialist bees that are really great at visiting um, asters, and they are really attracted to that specific species. Um, we know things like blazing star are really attractive to monarch butterflies, um, and we know that um, amorpha canescence, which is lead plant, is a species that's really attractive in remnants, but not so much represented in restorations. It's in because of that time component. So that's one to include, even if you're not seeing it show up immediately um, in your restorations. Um, and to kind of make sure I touch on the host plant component, I really want to, I really want to hammer that when we think about host plants for butterflies. Typically, we're thinking about violets for fritillaries and milkweeds for monarchs. There's so many more butterflies out there um, 
that use prairies, but they have a really diverse range of host plants that are usually included um, when you just create a diverse mix. So a lot of our endangered skippers, like the Dakota skipper, use grasses um, as a host plant. And they're relatively flexible which grass they use. They may have preferences, but they do use a lot of different kinds of grasses. Um, the one exception would be the Carner Blue Butterfly, which people plant lupin for. And that uh, you will have to kind of decide if that's a, an appropriate plant for you or not. Um, and so, I'm going to skip the, this, the thistles part because I don't have a lot of time. Well, and if you want to learn more about thistles as a nectar plant, you can tune into season one, episode seven, What You Do Now Matters, later. Yeah, yeah that's good. It's a good point. Uh, plants. Go, yeah, let's I think go I hammered plant layout. Yeah, I think I hammered diversity. Okay, so um, the second part of this question that I'm going to kind of touch on is plant layout, which I think is a really interesting question, and I think that it um, is has a relatively easy answer, but it it's a really complex topic. So I think typically we create. Um, the density of plants we want through our seed mixes. And that's kind of a combination of like, what is our tolerance for a given species balanced with, you know, how much we want to allow other species to thrive, right? Like we don't want to overcrowd our restoration with black-eyed Susan. Um, so we, we control that through seed mix. Um, a higher density of black-eyed Susans may be better or worse, but we're not trying to make this something that is taking over a restoration or is so patchy, you know, so we're trying to create like an even distribution based on our seed mixes. Um, with that being said, we do have um, some plant material that is limited. So when we think about things like host plants, violets for, for regal fritillaries, we're often put in a position where we don't have enough plants to cover an entire site. So we want to maybe think about, okay, do we want to just spread what we have over a large area or do we want to kind of aggregate them into one small space? And in this case, aggregating them will help out the regal fritillary um, a lot. And so this is for two reasons. One, it'll make violets a little bit easier to find um, because the density will be high, so they, they'll, they'll, if they pass through the area, they're not going to miss the violet. Um, and second, the caterpillars will probably eat through an entire violet, and they need to move to a new host plant. So having host plants close is important for them to find new host plants as they are navigating their environment. The higher density you have, the better. Um, and also having these higher density of plants near nectar plants that are going at the same time as the butterfly is, is probably a really good idea. And there's some evidence to back that up. Um, though it's not widely studied. So it is something that we are trying to figure out more. If these caterpillars um, that are using host plants, they're really fragile and they really just need as much support as you can give them um, in these dense areas. What's the, so, you used a great phrase the other day. You called them, what did you call them? Tubes of meat. <laughs> yeah, they're fake. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag tubes of meat. <laughs> so you wanna make sure that uh, you make those tubes of meat harder to find. All right, how do I plan for nesting sites? 
And I think that I should mention that they were talking about for bees. So we want to yeah. make sure that we we're, we're going to focus on bees here. Yeah. Yeah. Nesting sites for bees. So this is a really tough question because we really know so little about nesting. Um, we, we have naturalists that have been kind of out there laboring to, to understand bees for, you know, a hundred plus years, but you know, they haven't even scratched the surface of the, the thousand plus species we have in our, in our nation, not to mention just the 400 plus species we have in Minnesota. So, when we talk about managing for nesting resources, we could say manage for like one species in particular, but there's not one solution that maybe would help all bees simultaneously. It's just a really tough thing to kind of do as a, as a bulk without a specific goal. So there's a couple of things we think we know um, about bee nesting. Um, one of those is that we know that ground nesting bees, which make up approximately 90% of the bees you would see in prairies, um, typically like bare ground in sandier soil. So this isn't something that I would necessarily tell you to go out and like, you should make bare ground because we're trying to put plants in the ground, but, or you should put sand into your site. These are kind of things that are kind of hard to, to manage for. Hey, but, I would tell people to make bare ground, not yeah. by hauling beachy sand <laughs> onto their prairie sites, but by <laughs> making sure that they have diversity in their seed mix and they limit those aggressive species like big blue stem and Indian grass so that they can create space. That is the hardest thing to recreate in a reconstruction, the space yeah. that a remnant prairie offers us. Remnant prairies have bare ground in yeah, them. Yeah, they do. They have places for you to put your feet. So yeah, I mean, you don't need to haul in like, like have like a reconstruction with a lovely beach next to it, but you do need to try to make your seed mix so that you've got diversity. Yeah, an interesting story is there is a person um, who who does work out in Ohio that carted in, you know, 10,000 cubic yards of sand to create micro dunes for bees. And that's that's crazy. Like nobody should be doing that. <laughs> That was like more of a fun thing than... I admire their effort, though. I have a yeah. landowner um, here in southern Minnesota who had turtles that were nesting uh, adjacent to his prairie, so he hauled in sand to make them a nesting beach. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> but That's anyway, great. I digress. Yeah, the, the cautionary tale from this uh, person, though, was that they seeded this dune with um, this particular sand-liking species, Calides inequalis. And they all died over the winter because the sand dune wasn't large enough to buffer them from the cold temperatures. So it was kind of like an artificial habitat that didn't work for them outside of giving them the kind of texture they needed, but it wasn't it wasn't natural enough to protect them. So anyway, well, I'm digressing. But it is a digressing thing. But I just want to point out that you're bringing up a really important point that I feel like it's important to hammer home with this. With everything that we do, nature is really complex and we're often trying to figure it out and build that Lego, right? But even something like that, trying to create a nesting site, we didn't have all the instructions and so we made a, a big mistake in that case. So it's kind of like you have to operate like a doctor. First, do no harm and then learn as much as you can to make sure that the choices that you are making are good ones that are gonna serve the prairie well in the long term. 
Right. Yeah, it's definitely it's hard to know, especially with something that no one's really tried before. You know, it's just like just going for it is, you know, it could be awesome or it could be sad, like for this guy. Uh, but um, I do want to point out that we do have a graduate student who did some work um, in remnant prairies where she was looking at her name was Julia Brokaw. And she found that areas of remnants that were burned had higher amounts of nesting compared to unburned sections. And that was really cool because there's probably a lot of things that happen when you burn um, to the thatch layer, you know, opening up some bare ground, um, things like that, that I think would probably apply to restorations too. Like having a burn would probably open up some of those things. There could be other things that we don't know is stimulating them to nest more in these burned areas. Like maybe there's just more flowers because some flowers do a lot better after a burn. But it's something that just through your natural management of these areas, you probably are supporting nesting um, to some degree. And that's true for the other guild of nesting bees too, which are the stem nesting bees which they nest in these, um, I guess you could say like if you took a grass, a blade, like an old grass stem and you just cut it off, you know, you'll see that it could be hollow or maybe still have some of the pith, but bees will use those hollow broken off old stems and create nests out of them. And some bees will go as far as to excavate that pith in the middle of those stems and create nests that way. They won't wait for the weather to remove them. Okay, so wait, here's a question I have about that. So you said that they're broken off. Do they have to be broken off from the plant or will they use them if they're like the stem is left standing and attached? Over the um, it, from what I know, they need an access point. So they can't like cut the a stem that's like fully intact. They need some surface for which they could enter the stem. So um, yeah, some break point. And that's like some that's something that a lot of people are suggesting. Oh, if you want to create nesting resources for stem nesters in your garden, just just cut off the old vegetation from last winter down to about five inches and bees can use that and then the regrowth will cover it and it will be like a natural nesting area for these types of bees. And so, yeah, to our current understanding is that it's best if you can, you can remove the tops for the bees. We don't know very well if they use like nesting, like uh, stems that have fallen on the ground and they'll nest inside those stems that are not standing, but um, it's possible. Leaving the stuff on the site might be not a bad idea. So, more guessing than than true knowledge in that regard but um well that's in really case, interesting it might make some of our home gardeners really happy because when you have native plants you know one of the things like right in spring or right in fall that people want to do is they want to clean up in quotes right. their their area yeah. they want to they want to cut back all of that vegetation and so maybe the message is cut it back high and you'll be doing a good service to the to the cavity nesting bees that's right. interesting. I never thought about that before, that it needed to be broken off. I just imagine that they just, you know, chewed through it. Yeah. No, it's for some bees um, out there, there's these carpenter bees. They're, we don't really have them in Minnesota yet. 
Um, they're classically these eastern species. They're and they bore into people's decks, into fence posts, into trees. They're really intense and they're really big too. People get freaked out by them, but they're really gentle and they're really cool. Um, and that's something that if you go online and Google, you'll see like, how do I get rid of these bees in my deck? And it's, like, <laughs> it's that. I'm sorry. Are those audio files that we're gonna find, and that's how people are talking? How you should. You should see if we can find. That's how I say it in my head. Like, how do I get rid of these bees? How do I get rid of these bees? <laughs> <laughs> and I just think I was, and you know, a lot of times it's just a matter of painting the deck or or treating the wood. Those are the things, but. I, that's this is a big digression, but yeah, there are some bees that can and do just make their own opportunities. They just will bore into wood or other substrates. There's some that nest in stone, some that nest in sandstone, and things like that too. So it, a lot of those aren't bees that we necessarily have here. Like in a prairie situation, I believe it's going to be mostly like stem or ground nesting or cavity nesting, which is another actually really interesting one and one I didn't plan on talking about and one that I could get into with planning for bumblebee nesting is edge sites against forest is is thought of as being great because that helps with mice. Mice really love edge sites and bumblebees use old rodent burrows. So that's... You taught me something last year though. I didn't realize that bumblebees, like I always think of them as, as ground nesters and you taught me that they basically sometimes, like they'll nest in the ground, they'll nest in cavities, sometimes they nest on top of the ground and I love your phrase that you used and sometimes you were like, sometimes they just nest in really weird places and are like, eh, this will work. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> oh, bumblebees. So weird and wonderful. All right, we're going to move to our next question we're gonna hear a new voice paul do you want to read this question you might have to paraphrase it because it's a real long one sure uh we'll start with the beginning i have historically drilled my prairie plantings in the spring into soybean soybean stubble um but they're experiencing uh, experimenting with broadcast seeding in the winter over snow uh, do you know the percentage of seeded species that show up in dormant season or, or winter broadcast seeding versus spring seedings it seemed like they got better diversity uh, when they did the dormant season. Okay, let's start there and answer that one, and then we'll answer the other pieces. Okay, really quick answer for that. No, I don't know that percentage. <laughs> Next? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the question. No. <laughs> so, okay, here's the good news. I don't know the percentage, but here's the thing about dormant seeding. A lot of times our seeds have a particular strat stratification process that they need to go through. That's basically how they break dormancy. Some seeds need moisture, some seeds need a freeze-thaw cycle, some seeds need a little bit of warmth. It's different depending on who you are. Seeds are their own individual selves uh, and we like to empower them to be that. So what I often notice and what this person is, is noticing too is that sometimes it seems like more things come up after you dormant seed because you're letting nature do that stratification process for you. Instead of you having to do it, you're basically like, yeah, nature, figure it out. Make sure that these seeds grow. It also is helpful with a lot of our wildflower seeds or our forb seeds because some of those have a really hard seed coat and going through that freeze thaw and that moisture that you get over the winter here in Minnesota really helps break dormancy. But now here's the real talk part of this. 
Okay. So the best time to seed a prairie is right when those seeds would normally be sowed naturally. So right when the plant sets seeds and is dropping them into the prairie. But for most of us, we don't have the time, staff, or resources to go out and seed a prairie six, seven, eight times throughout a season, right? But that's really the best time. Just look at when when is nature uh, seeding porcupine grass, and then that's the best time that you should seed because that's ecologically what would be correct, right? But again, we don't, we're limited. We try to compress those seeding times into three. The other good so news, so oh, Megan, you say something. Yeah, Megan, so is this just a matter of, of time and expediency? I mean, if I put the seeds in the ground during the summertime, they're going to go through that same process the next winter, right? So they're going to get right. that. So did, are you just talking about trying to speed things up? Is that really what it comes down to? Well, I don't know if it speeds things up. I think it's just how the kind of resources we have. Like I said, I mean, most of the time, it, if you look at the philosophy of I'm going to seed when the prairie is seeding, that means that at a minimum you're seeding three times, early, mid, and late in the season. And most of us just don't have the resources or staff to be able to do that. So we compress and seed all of our seeds, either dormant or during the growing season. And we either do it through drilling or broadcast. And so I think for a lot of people that dormant seeding and broadcast is really beneficial for a couple different reasons. One, that natural stratification, but then two, it's really easy to get your tiny, tiny little forb seeds too deep. And if you get them too deep, uh, they're not gonna grow. So the good news is our friends, uh, Diane Larson, Pauline Drobny, and a whole bunch of other amazing scientists just put out a paper in, uh, gosh, when did they do this? 2017, persistence of native and exotic plants 10 years after prairie reconstruction. And one of the things that they found is that there's no establishment difference after 10 years. So even though it might look based on seeding method. So even though you might be seeing things that's like, oh, when I dormant seed, it seems like it's better. They did uh, dormant season broadcast, growing season broadcast, and growing season drill for a couple different seed mixes. And after 10 years, all of those, like planting method wasn't a factor in changing how those plantings looked. So I know we're focused on, on seeding method here, but so that are we, do we need to think broader too and with respect to our establishment and long-term uh, status? So then we're going to, have to start thinking about management too then, but we just want to focus on seeding now. Yeah, I think um, you always have to be thinking about long-term. I mean, you always need to be thinking about what choices are you making in establishment phase management? What choices are you making for long-term management? How did you build your seed mix? But, you know, this question wanted to know particular about seeding. Is there a, a method that's better than another method? I would always well, argue that you need to be thinking about diversity. Okay, so let's get to the second part of the question too. This is so when thinking about dormant seeds and seeding, um, how about timing? Uh, this person had broadcast in late February, early March. Uh, at, they said on the first few nice days before above freezing to lock the seed into snow, um, and they want to know if there's benefits into having that seed out there longer. So if they uh, did a broadcast seeding during the winter earlier in the winter. Does that make a difference? Yeah, I think it 
always this people hate when I give these kinds of answers but um tell me what kind of winter we're gonna have and I'll tell you how it's gonna go <laughs> like tell me what the weather's gonna do and I'm gonna tell you exactly how this is gonna work out for you <laughs> so I think th it, there could be benefits because some seeds would take longer than that spring warm-up in that like couple months that you're giving them if you're seeding in February and March but I also want to applaud this person because I think their premise here is exactly right so instead of thinking about it in terms of a month, I'm gonna give you a rule of thumb. I typically think about seeding after soil temperatures fall below 50 degrees for a consistent period of time, and this is so that your seeds will remain dormant and that they, you don't suddenly have a pop-up prairie in November and then it goes into frost and that would be very bad, um, but before freezing. And they mentioned this, that's so you can lock I'm gonna use their phrase, lock the seed in, because you want that soil to still be sticky. So that the seed, when the soil's frozen, it's not very sticky and your seed is just kind of sitting on top, which means it's not really attached to the soil. So you wanna make sure that you do it, you know, 50 degrees, but before it's frozen. The other good time to do it is right before a snow, because the snow will do that locking bit for you. It'll lock the seeds in, and then as that snow melts, and does a freeze thaw, it'll actually carry the seeds down into the soil and plant them for you, which is a beautiful thing. So tell me when it's gonna snow, and that's when you should seed. <laughs> like, which is, yeah. So and the got other one thing- more small part. Oh, oh, sorry. Got one more small question here, and they wanted to know if they need to be inoculating their seed. Oh yeah, so I'm gonna turn that one over to Gina and Ian because I don't really know, like this fascinates me, this idea, but I, my experience with it is that there's a practicality aspect, like how do you get the inoculant, keep it cold and get it from the factory to transportation to the field and have it still be alive, like have all of those good bacteria be alive that you need. And I don't really know what the answer is. Yeah, so this is Gina, um, and I think largely there is still a big practicality issue. I think a lot of this is is still early research. You know, we know that over time, as these these soils have been cultivated and we've been doing all kinds of stuff to them, the microbial community is different. There's different bacteria, there's different fungi. It's it's totally different than it was in the remnant prairies, and there is a lot of research showing that if you can get that good mix of microbes on your seeds, they do better, especially if it's the mix of microbes from a native prairie. But at the moment, there's not really a good mechanism to to get that into a large scale restoration. Ian, I just jumped in. Do you wanna do you wanna yeah. take over? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just it's just such a it's such a frontier for us. You know, because there's so many um, different kinds of soil organisms. So we have, you know, the, the symbiotic soil organisms that we we know are really important, like the like the arbuscular fungi that colonize plant roots, and the the ones that pea the pea family plants have. That and then there's other ones that just we just have no idea. They're probably a part of this really complex web, and it's just we just can't know how to recreate that and so we know that some parts of this are are important and we can demonstrate that but how do we recreate the original is is far on the horizon and so yeah there's the practicality part and then there's just a general lack of understanding it's such a 
frontier in terms of what we know about the soil and what kind of organisms are there. So yeah, it's it's hard and it's important and it makes a difference, but it's yeah, we're just starting to understand it. And it takes time too to build your soil health back, right? Like if you are working on a reconstruction and that site has a history of soil disturbance, that is gonna take a lot of time for you to build it back and have it be what it should be to make your prairie work. I'm gonna use a phrase that I normally use. Uh, prairie seeds are not magic beans, so we need to stop treating them like they're magic beans. You can't throw them out onto a really degraded site and be like, you're native, you're gonna do fabulous. Like you still need to give them the right site prep and the right biology, bacteria, microorganisms to survive, which means you're gonna to need to put some energy into building back your soil health so that you have a great prairie. Okay, one last thing that I didn't say and then we'll move to the next question. Uh, just circling back to the seeding thing really quickly, I'm gonna use this phrase, bet on nature. So look to the prairie for answers on what is best and always put, like, if I'm going to place a bet tomorrow, I'm always going to bet on my prairie seeds and how they're working naturally. So I don't know if that helps you, but bet on nature to guide you in how to build it back. Okay, Gina, let's move on. Question six. But really, it's like question 29 because all of these questions <laughs> are like 20 questions in one question. So we're doing, there's... We just want to point out that there's a lot more that we could say about each of these topics, but in order for it to be a little bit easier for you all who are listening to consume, we tried to limit ourselves to these 10 minute responses because we could talk about this. We could talk about one question for the whole podcast. <laughs> okay. How do we make the best reconstruction we can with a low budget? We can build a beautiful plan and then find out that it's highly expensive and out of our budget. How do we accomplish this theme with limited funds? Okay, real talk. This is such a good question, Megan. It, it is. A good I question. I get this all the time, and people talk about this all the time when we go out to evaluate restorations. They do. And so what's the answer? <laughs> what's the answer? You know, it's going to be a diversity word in here somewhere. It's going to be. Okay, I'm going to have to have. We're going to have to have like. Uh, this is like I'm going to channel my inner Norma Benage and talk about uh, budgeting. That's my mom. We're gonna talk about, uh, you know, if, you, if you're bouncing your checkbook and you're buying more things than the money that you have coming in, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like you're living outside of your means. So that's from Norma Benage. Quit living outside of your means. So if you're building a plan, the first thing I would say to this person is you should be considering cost when you're building that plan. Like that is a critical piece. Site conditions, your goals, and your budget are gonna ultimately determine what you can do. And while you're gonna hear me talk so much about diversity and how important it is, because it is important, it's your foundation, you also need to make sure that you have that check and balance in there of how much you can actually spend. Okay. First thing, this person said best reconstruction. Gina, what do you think when you hear the word best? Um, I, I think I don't know what you mean. Ooh, I think people mean answer. different things. Such a good answer. <laughs> so proud of you. Okay, what are your goals? 
what what do you mean by that? I'm going to assume for this question that you mean that you want the most resilient, most functional, I'm going to make up a word, diversiest, showiest reconstruction around. That that's what you want. That's what you mean by best. But if you don't define your goals, you'll never know if you've met them. And if you don't define your goals, if you're talking with landowners, you won't understand their expectation. Sometimes landowners sign up for a program and they definitely have an idea in their mind of what they want that site to look like. And then they get something that doesn't at all match their expectations because you've never had a conversation with them about goals and how much things actually cost. So doing it right costs money. It just does. And we're gonna have to get away from this idea that we can plant a prairie and it's gonna cost $100 an acre. That is not a prairie. You might've planted some prairie things, but you have not planted a prairie. I would say on average, if I want a showy, best, resilient, functional planting, I'm looking at $1,000 an acre. And I know for some of y'all who are listening, you're like, I don't have that kind of money. She, that is crazy talk. And I get it. You can also build a really nice prairie that is functional for $500 an acre. But we're just gonna have to kind of divorce ourselves from this idea that we can do it for 100 bucks an acre. So the thing is, I totally get it. I don't have $500 an acre. I don't have $1,000 an acre. Do it in pieces. Do it right and do it in pieces. Because what you're trying to do here is you're trying to make sure if you're telling me you want the best thing out there, then you need to make sure that you're putting diversity in. This idea that we used to have this idea that you could plant like all grass and intercede forbs later and it would be cheaper or you could plant like a really economy mix and it would then you could intercede later. That only works if you Okay, first of all, the only planting grass in inner seeding forbs does not work because once the grass gets established, there's no room. The other idea for these economy mixes could work as long as you limit those dominant species. But you have to remember everything that you're putting in there initially, you're giving it a head start. You're, you're basically starting that race for them at the half mile and everybody else is back at start to run the mile. So you have to know that the new stuff that you're seeding in is going to have that much more competition and struggle. So I really like the idea of doing it in pieces. Make sure you follow your basic rules of thumb. You need a minimum seeding rate of 40 seeds per square foot, seven or more native grass or sedge species, at least two species of bunch grass, fulfill the guilds, fulfill the guilds, fulfill the guilds. Warm season grass, cool season grass, sedges and rushes, legumes, and non-legume forbs. If you don't fulfill those, nature will fill them for you with something I guarantee you, you don't want. And then Can I jump in, Megan? Yes. I in. know it's not my question, but I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> you can't um, help yourself. <laughs> it it's just, I love the idea of doing it in smaller pieces and doing it right. You know, and there's, there's a lot of papers out there about spillover and how doing these like high species richness micro plantings benefits the areas that you're not restoring too. So it, yeah, it's, it's not a bad idea. I think we get into the mindset of all or nothing and it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be that way. 
I love that you said that the all or nothing piece that's so important because we do and it's the it's again it's we need to it's that insta prairie idea it's the cup of ramen I want to eat I want to eat right now I want to go into the microwave and I'm ready in two minutes okay yeah you might be eating and you might have grass cover and you might have some wildflowers but how much better would you be eating if you put in the work to make a well-balanced, healthy meal? And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to put in the work to make a well-balanced, healthy prairie that is diverse so that it can withstand all the pressure it's gonna face. Climate, invasion, there's a lot of things that are stacked against a prairie. And so we wanna give it, again, those tools to succeed. And Gina, you mentioned something we were talking about this earlier about location and scale. So I want to make sure you get to talk about that a little bit here, too. Uh, well, I'm totally distracted now by this doing it in pieces. Um, and I just want to give a shout out to a lot of the amazing land managers in Minnesota who are already doing this. Um, you know, as a restoration evaluation program, we go out and gather stories about how people are using legacy funds and, and what's working. And we want to promote those. and We've seen a lot of awesome examples of where people are are doing the right stuff, doing the hard stuff, spending the money they need to spend, taking the time and doing small pieces and then building on it. Um, and it's working. It's working all over the state. So I just want to put in another plug for that. You don't have to do this all or nothing. Like, I'm going to plant this ginormous prairie in this one season. It's going to be amazing. It'd be awesome if we could do that. But sometimes that's just not possible. I like what you did there, your pun. I'm going to plug this. Did you? Do <laughs> I didn't know you'd catch that. <laughs> I'm going to plug it like a prairie. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, I don't even remember what I was supposed to talk about now. Fair Can joke. you remind me again? Joke. <laughs> <laughs> location and scale. And okay, before you do location and scale, I'll just add the other basics in there because I forgot to say Great. them because Ian and I got excited. This is what happens. We're getting excited. So include species from different families, and then make sure you have at least 20 or more native forbs with at least five species in each bloom period, which is early, middle, and late. And that's like a minimum. This is a bare minimum. People in Iowa are planting 100 plus species every time they're doing a planting. And you, can, I know that's terrifying, but sometimes, I love Karen Jokla said this when we were doing our seed mix clinic. She said, sometimes people believe there's an, there's an economic constraint and they, but really there's no, wait, what did she say? Now I'm messing it up. <laughs> I'm ruining it. Sorry, Karen. <laughs> you said that sometimes people confuse an ecologic constraint with an economic constraint. And so you need to make sure like, is it really economics that's holding you back? Is it really ecology that's holding you back? Like what is actually the barrier here? Because I hear all the time people are like, well, I can't plant a hundred species seed mix because that would be too expensive. But what species are you picking? You know, and how, I mean, you can do it. You can do it affordable. And by gummy, if those fine folks of Iowa can do it, so can we. Okay, Gina, really quickly before we move on, talk about location and scale in one minute or less. In one minute or less. Um, <laughs> pass. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so, we're going to talk um, a little bit about location later when we talk about some of the climate related questions. So maybe I'll just emphasize again the scale piece where, you know, we don't have to be doing these huge, huge parcels and do everything all at once. But we also want to make sure that we're we're putting in a big enough piece of land that the prairie has a chance. There's enough room for things to move around. There's enough room for some diversity in there. You know, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of emphasis on things like buffer, buffer strips and some of these smaller plantings along roadsides and getting the native vegetation on the ground is great there, but we also want to be cognizant that, you know, kind of aware that there's going to be some limitations to what these really small parcels can offer us. And so maybe on these really small pieces that aren't near other larger remnants or restorations, it doesn't make as much sense to put in $1,000 an acre. Sorry, Megan. I know, I know, it's all right. Connection is important, is what you're saying. Yes, Like connection, yes, thank you. Yeah, connection's important. Okay, I'm going to give my Karen Jokla quote the right way because I just found it, so that way she won't hate me forever. Okay, Karen, here it is for real. We often confuse economic limitations with ecological ones. For example, you don't actually have to wait 10 years to get prairie drop seed. You just need to seed more of it initially. What you start with when you plant determines the results for years to come. And one of our U.S. Fish and Wildlife biologists, when we were doing this in the seed mix, I was like, or in our seed mix clinic, I was like, you just need to remember that every choice you make now, you're setting the trajectory for that piece of land for the next hundred plus years. So you really need to put in the time and energy into planning, site prep, and seed mix design so that you're doing it with the best available science, with diversity, and you're doing it right. And he, he popped up from the back of the class and he's like, yeah, thanks, Megan, no pressure. Like hundreds of years. No pressure, but it's true. Okay, let's move on. Nina, Gina, take it away. Climate change. Climate I feel like there should change. be intro music. Climate change do, 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 with Nina and Gina. Their <laughs> names rhyme, but they're not the same person. Woohoo! Okay, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I want a recording of that. I'm going to pull it out of the podcast. Great. <laughs> So I'm going to read the question. All right. It's, it's nice and it's a long one. It's got a lot of pieces. So we're going to break it down. Just curious how you all feel about this. Should we be planting different varieties of trees from the next warmest zone, assisted migration, especially shade trees? Trees can take a long time to amount to the tree that you're wanting. You know, I'm planting this bur oak so my great-great-grandchildren can enjoy its shade type thing. There's a little more and we'll come back to it. But I'm going to stop there because that's already a lot. Yeah. Um, and I want to start by breaking down this idea of assisted migration a little bit, because when we go out and talk to landowners and land managers and, and people about assisted migration, people think about it in really different ways. Um, so I'm going to kind of describe three ways we've seen people think about it. First, moving genetic material, moving plants that are adapted to one place moving them to a new place where we think they're going to do well in the face of climate change. This is all around the idea that things are changing and we're trying to put in plants that have a good chance of being able to persist. So uh, moving material around, that's kind of the first one. And there's a lot of information, there's more information about this than other ways people think about assisted migration. And I'm going to put in a plug for ep season one, episode three, where Megan and Jess talk a lot about this mix and match strategy of bringing in a variety of locally adapted seeds and so moving genetic material around. And you should dig into that episode if you want to know more. So Gina, when yeah. in this example of assisted migration, you're talking about moving plant material around, but you're talking about moving uh, genetic material around, right? Mm -hmm. Of species. Yeah, so like within within the range of where the plant already exists, moving some plants, some seeds or some 
some individual plants to a different part of that already existing range. Thank you. And you queued me up. Great. The next kind is moving things outside of the range. Um, so this would be an example where maybe there's a species that's native to Iowa, like um, Echinacea pallida, which we don't have in Minnesota, but people, we've seen some people think that this species has a better chance of making it in a future climate. So they've moved it into Minnesota. There's really not a lot of research around this. There's some for sure. Um, but this is really complicated because when you're thinking about moving a species outside of its range, it's not just the climate pieces that are like the obvious ones, temperature and moisture, but there's all these other things we've been talking about, the microbial community, the other plants that it's, you know, already living with in its, its normal habitat. So this is, a, this is one where there's, we just know a little less, but we're seeing some people do it, so it's important to talk about. And then the last way that people kind of think about assisted migration is like migrating whole habitats. Um, so maybe there's a reason that what existed historically in an area can't make it anymore. Um, and there was an example that just came out in the Minnesota Conservation Volunteer about near Strand State Park, where essentially the whole park is getting wetter. Um, they've gotten a lot more rain, the soil, soils are holding it, and the trees that were like iconic to this park are dying off. And so the land managers are trying to figure out what assemblage of trees, what habitat type can we put in that's gonna make it in that area. So moving things within their range, moving genetic material, moving things outside their range, and moving whole habitats. Those are all the ways that we see people talk about assisted migration. So with this question, it really sounds like they're talking about moving species outside of their range, potentially, or the genetic material piece. Right, Nina? Yeah, I kind of interpret this question to maybe encapsulate the moving genetic material from a warmer seed zone or a different um, you know, climate adapted area um, within a species range or also moving species outside to a new, what's going to be coming in a new future climate range. Awesome. So Nina, what, what has TNC been doing and what are they learning about answers to this question? Yeah. Um, AKA the Nature Conservancy. Okay. Sorry. Continue. I've only been with the government for three years and I'm already using the acronyms. <laughs> yeah, the Nature Conservancy is doing um, a lot of research and on the ground projects to try and understand more about these different types of assisted migration. Um, so en route of talking about this, answering this question, I want to share with you more about what we're learning. Um, so heading up to the boreal forest, our forest ecologists in Minnesota are are working to test different approaches to enhance their um, methods or use different strategies towards climate change adaptability. Um, and these are kind of encapsulated by resilience and transition. So resilience in the terms of, we use, have used this term a lot in the podcast today. And I guess what I think of it as um, setting up a system to be able to persist into the future and withstand changing conditions. Um, and so we're trying to use different tools that are available to identify where places, uh, you know, have microclimates that are resilient or changing or less quickly than other places that we've seen. 
um, you know, that might be buffered. What do you mean by a microclimate? It's like a really tiny tiny rainstorm? (laughs) No, well, (laughs) possibly, depending on the geomorphology of a place or the soil type or condition, um, kind of the landscape context, so what's happening on the lands next door, um, places like we're seeing, um, you know, resilience pockets of areas along, think of the the cliff sides or those granite outcroppings uh, along the north shore of Lake Superior. So we've seen that some of those shaded bluffs uh, are cooler and they are are like buffered protected zones um, that are changing less rapidly than to climate than other places that we're seeing. So we can definitely help to maintain our boreal species and our local species, our local ecotypes in those regions, in those um, resilient places. Um, You know, and that's not to say, you know, we know that those trees and those species are adapted to cold conditions, but when it's not cold anymore, you know, we may also want to think about moving um, species outside of their range. So that's a reason to think about the assisted migration piece. Um, We're also testing this in transition strategies. So we've got several experimental plots um, up in the northern Minnesota region where we're testing different functional traits of the ecotypes of species. So white pine, you know, p- planting northern white pine to um, next to a white pine that comes from maybe central Minnesota, more the, the southern part of their range, and monitoring how well those plants grow and succeed uh, and persist throughout changing conditions. So we're looking at this. Uh, to see how do different ecotypes of the species compare to each other. Um. So Nina, based on what you guys have learned so far and, and other research that's come out, what would you say to this listener who asked this question, should they be planting varieties of trees from the next warmest zone? How do they how do they approach getting those beautiful big shade trees? Um, and they talk specifically about the context of public use areas. Yeah. Um, well, to apply this, what we're learning in the forest industry, you know, there's a lot of uh, motivation to learn more and try and experiment with some of these different strategies. Um, we can parallel some of what we're learning in the prairie community, um, you know, by using what we're learning there and apply it to our systems. So for this question in using different tree species, there are tools available like the Tree Atlas. So this uh, is a great resource online where you can go and look up different tree species uh, to understand their current range and it's integrated with climate prediction information. Um, And then you can see the results there, uh, see the predicted range changes of different species and talk with people to see if that would be a good you know, choice for your restoration project. So, you know, always want to be using uh, evidence that we have, information that's out there uh, to make a good decision. And I think one thing that you and I have talked about quite a bit is the importance of documenting all of this. You know, we're, we're trying some new things here and we're people are trying to do the best they can do with the information we have. And the best way for us all to move forward is to document what we're doing, why we did it, how it went, and then talk to each other about it. 
And Paul, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second because this is the Prairie Pod and there is a very cool tool that exists for people to start documenting some of this information and share it. So can you tell us a little bit about that tool? Yeah, thanks, Gina. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, that tool that Gina's referring to is the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative Database. It, you know, part of the goal of the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative, or, or our motivation, was to bring together the results and the experiences of a lot of different people. But we all tend to do things kind of in our own way, and we, and we document things in our own ways, or we don't document them at all. So PRI has developed a tool called the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative Database, where we can all record the same data, or the same parameters of our reconstruction from the seed mix to our management strategies, management techniques. And then we, we can assemble those all in a centralized database. And that will give us the chance to objectively analyze the outcomes from our prairies to see which of those uh, inputs, again, the site history, what we planted, how we planted it, and how we've managed it, how those affect the outcomes. So in our, the intent is to, over time, is to be able to do an objective analysis to see what rises to the top, to see if there's lessons that we can apply or situations where lessons apply. Does that capture it for you, Gina? Yeah, thanks, Paul. I'm going to bring it up again, maybe twice, because I think it's a really important tool. Um, so, Nina, I, I've done a bad job timekeeping, and we're out of time. So I think we, we should move on to the last question, just so that we can wrap this up in a reasonable amount of time for our listeners. Um, and the last question is is kind of a big one, and it, it is all about climate change. Um, a listener wanted to know, what are the predicted moisture and seasonal changes for Minnesota? And what are other groups doing to respond to climate change? What should, what should land managers be doing? Um, so I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about the predicted moisture and seasonal changes. We know Minnesota's getting warmer, and we know it's getting wetter. There's a lot of information available in the Minnesota Climatology Office, a lot of great tools. You know, the, in a little bit more detail, the part of the season that's getting warmer the fastest are the winter lows. So we're having less really really cold days, and those really cold days are not quite as cold as they used to be. Um, we're also getting more rainfall, but it's happening in a really specific way. It's happening with bigger, crazy storms. I had one go through, actually, as we were recording a couple minutes ago. I had to mute myself. Um, and spring is wetter on average, um, and summer is, is maybe going to have a little bit more drought. And it's going to vary a lot um, based on what we know from year to year. It's going to vary, um, you know, in within the state. So there's some of these big trends, but overall, we're still going to have a lot of that variation. Like Megan was saying, you know, if you can tell me when it's going to snow, I can tell you when to plant. That kind of thing is still going to hold true. Um, when we're going to have the first snowfall, how much rain we're going to have is going to vary from year to year. But there are some big trends. There's a couple cool tools that you can log on to and find out exactly what's happening in your area. So if you're, you know, out by Wyndham and you want to know exactly what's been going on, you can log on to the Minnesota Climate Trends tool. And this will be a resource um, that we have for you for this podcast. And it's basically an interactive map where you can click on your area and get data about what's happened temperature-wise, precipitation-wise, over time. Um, and it's got a lot of a lot of cool features. You can compare years and trends. 
What it doesn't have right now is any concrete answers about how you use that information for management. So we'll circle back to that. Another tool that's available is the Minnesota Watershed Health Assessment Framework. And this is another map-based tool where you can, you can click on your area and pull up um, what they call the climate summaries for watersheds. It's at a watershed scale. And I think these are super cool, especially when you're trying to explain climate change to people, because they have these maps where you can, it compares what's happened in the last 30 years to what's happened over the entire climate record in Minnesota. And you can see exactly how much more rain has fallen on average in the last 30 years compared to historically, or how much hotter it's been. Um, and that can be really powerful when you're trying to talk to people about climate change. So I'd encourage you to check out those tools. But um, like I said, essentially, Minnesota is getting warmer and wetter. We know things are changing. And a lot of people want to know what should they be doing about that in terms of management. Um, so Nina, I know that you you didn't get to talk about quite everything that that TNC has been doing. And there's a lot that they've been doing and kind of thinking about how to respond to these climate changes. Do you want to jump in here with a little bit more? Yeah, thanks, awesome. Gina. Yeah, I, TNC has been thinking about this a lot, you know, not in, only at that resilient kind of broad, uh, big scale, um, but also small scale. So, you know, what do I put on the ground here? And we've touched upon these themes throughout the podcast of diversity is great. And um, we the tagline, diversity is forbulous. Um, I'm sorry, did you just say forbulous? I love yes. how much you're laughing while you're saying it. <laughs> Diversity is forbulous. Uh, when it comes to the prairie. Uh, so, you know, even in the small bits, we want diversity out there. Um, you know, we want grass and forbs, you know, flowering plants and patches and, and genetic diversity within our restorations. And, um, you know, kind of the... The go-to is I get my seed from, you know, we have kind of our patterns of where we like to source things, but um, we're working on a new project of that will help us overcome um, where do I get multiple sources of seeds? Where do I get that genetic diversity from for my restoration? Um, you know, we have sent teams out across the landscape and developed tools um, where we have mapped the locations of seed sources on really high quality remnant prairies, um, you know, so we can learn and share that information about where these really um, diverse uh, microclimate adapted, you know, get all of that variability to be put and mixed together in our restorations to allow it to be the most adaptable, the most resilient that it can be moving forward, um, you know, no matter what changes occur on that piece of land. So this multiple source seed project where we went out, looked for the seed on the ground, um, mapped it, and we're sharing those resources. Um, and we're also, you know, a, a big, maybe uncomfortable factor of this um, is we, you know, we're still learning. Um, but the time is now, and we're going to learn while we do things. 
So we've got some experiments growing in the laboratory and on the ground in small plots, you know, similar to what's happening in the boreal forest with planting different ecotypes and measuring their success. We have some small plots where we're actually testing these things on the ground too, in experimental design and in some, um, you know, restorations that got planted this spring. So I'm really excited to continue sharing what we're learning, um, you know, from, from mixing these seed sources together. And Nina, I'll just say from my experience talking with land managers, there's a lot of appreciation for those efforts to, to help make those diverse seed sources accessible because it's difficult to be able to have the time and the resources to go out and get these mix and match seed sources right. that we're all advocating for. It takes, it takes resources and not everyone has those. Um, I've actually heard some land managers talk with Envy about the lucky people that can tap into it and they, they want it in their area. For sure. So, so yeah. And um, also as part of this effort, there's been, we want to support models like the Northwest Minnesota Seed Consortium, you know, where it's a group of agency folks, NGOs, academics coming together, building this partnership saying, oh, you need this kind of seed? Well, I have a tractor. Let's swap resources um, and, you know, work together to get the work done on the ground. Um, you know, some groups are better positioned to take risks and try new things. Um, you know, there may be some various reasons why you're not able to take the risks on a piece of land with trying something new. Um, you know, but that's why partnerships are so important. Um, we've got different abilities and we need to continue documenting and communicating. Uh, yeah, so we can test these things on the ground and see what works. Yeah, and there's also a lot of, there's strong evidence that building building these prairies and putting these diverse locally adapted mixes in connected parcels and, and in coordinated pieces is more effective than these isolated pieces. And I would just encourage folks, if you haven't, I know you all have multiple times read the Minnesota Prairie Plan, um, but if you haven't, there's a second cover edition to cover, over to now. cover to cover to cover to cover. Cover to cover. My copy is falling apart. Uh, no, it actually is. But there's a second edition out. You know, check it out. It's got a lot of information about target corridors and coordinated efforts. Um, and again, like Nina just said, we need to document what we're doing, why we're doing it, how it's going, and talk to people about it. And again, that. Uh, PRI monitoring protocol and database, the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative, I won't just use the letters, um, is a great place to do that. So if you haven't, if you haven't had a chance to look at that, I really encourage you to, because the, the protocol to collect the data is actually pretty, pretty quick and pretty straightforward. You don't need a lot of resources. Um, and it's, it's a way that we can start aggregating and putting this information together and learning. Um, and I feel like I'm talking a lot. But, You're doing great. If you don't yeah. write it down, we can't well, learn from it. You're doing great. Yeah, and, and we're continuing, uh, the Nature Conservancy is continuing to develop those tools and uh, developing them into public facing, um, you know, available yeah. tools. So, you know, we were working with this mapping effort on ArcGIS Online uh, so that land managers can continue collecting information about where those seed sources occur across the landscape and then um, you know, identify where they may want to, with permission, <laughs> seek permission to go and, you know, collect some seeds of species that they're interested in. And the tool, just to be clear, so the tool that Nina's talking about 
is part of that seed sourcing project that the Nature Conservancy is working on in partnership with others. And the tool that Gina is mentioning is the Prairie Reconstruction <laughs> Initiative tool where it's actually a, it's migrating to an ArcGIS platform where you can enter your reconstruction data into it so that we can learn collectively across the prairie parts of the state and the nation and the world. <laughs> so, and the Nature Conservancy is a partner in the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative because I hope that you're getting these themes, diversity, connection, and partnership. If I could sum up the answer to every question that we've had so far, those are the answers. Diversity, sure. connection, and partnership. We can do, Gina said some things are unattainable. We can do so much more and make things so much more attainable when we do them together. And we try to solve and work on these problems together, just like we're doing in this podcast today with our little partnership field day group. I don't know why I feel like I have to sing everything, but I feel like I do. Party on the prairie. Party on the prairie, people. Okay. <laughs> that one is definitely going to be somebody's ringtone. So we're super excited that we just, um, that's a wrap, right? That's a, that's a wrap. Did you guys have any final like comments you want to say before we close out here? No? Crickets? One of, the, one of the things I was thinking about as you guys were talking about these new digital resources is just how much information is just sitting in somebody's file cabinet from the past 50 years of management activity and in plant surveys, like stuff that's just not available to anyone because it's just, it's in a paper format, it's locked in someone's cabinet that yeah. could be really useful. I love your optimism that you feel that it's even in somebody's cabinet. Like, in a pile on the floor somewhere. That, that's optimistic that it's in a file folder. I love that yeah. you feel that it might have even been written down because our big struggle is that a lot of times our, our managers don't write things down. They do really incredible things. They have so much pressure on them, so many work tasks that they're asked to do, constantly asked to do more with less. And so I'm trying to, that we need, we need you to write it down. So that when the next person starts, at a minimum, it's in a file cabinet somewhere. And at a maximum, we can get it into these collective databases, which would be better for everyone because then the information is accessible, easily shareable, and then we can easily, like, uh, what's the word, compile it all together and take a peek at it. Bring all our treasures together. <laughs> our hey, that's a great softball. So one of the, one of the <laughs> phrases we use on our... Uh... PRI monitoring protocol fact sheet is that monitoring is an investment in your prairie, but sharing your data is an investment in the prairie landscape. Oh, that's beautiful. Way to go, Prairie Reconstruction Initiative. I knew you were beautiful people. Just bringing it home. <laughs> Gina, do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to say? I just get so excited when things are well documented. Um, and it doesn't have to be super fancy or take a lot of time. And that's, that's, I think, one of the things that, you know, as soon as we say documentation, everyone's like, no, I have too much paperwork already, which is true. Everyone already has too much they're trying to do. But we can't learn from what we're doing. We can't learn what's best if we're not documenting. Um, as my daughter would say, it makes my heart happy when things are documented well. Amen, sister. So let's, let's keep going. Amen. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. Wait, one more thing. Oh my gosh, Ian. Oh, Ian. You just I'm messed sorry. up my whole flow. I'm going to do the whole commercial. Okay, fine. Go, Ian, go. <laughs> Oh, well, no, I don't want to. <laughs> well, what I was going to say was that just piggybacking off of your, like, let's all work together um, kind of spiel, your spiel is that, you know, there's like one of the themes that I've been hammering is there's so much we don't know about what happens after we do it or what, how does something that we do affect other animals and groups and just forming those partnerships with people who can do that monitoring and, and things like that is just also like i think something that is really important and a great thing to do you know so just kind of like we're doing more bumblebee surveys on different types of lands and things like that and working with land managers to kind of look at their bee communities and i think that's just great you know like we're trying to get together these like larger picture of like what's going on with these animals and um, working together is, is critical. You know, like us poor bee people can't do it without everyone else, you know, so. These poor bee people. No, we don't know anything over here. <laughs> That's not true. You know many things. You've taught me many things. Yeah, we do. We're better together. Better together on the prairie with our peeps. Okay, so next, week next week we're going to be back again with another special land manager takeover on prairie tuesday bonus episode time so i know that you're just you're burning you have burning questions related to management and we're going to cover them see what i did there burning's a management tool we're going to talk about it next time <laughs> okay the puns don't end on the prairie pod you betcha you asked, we're going to answer. Thank you again to our team. Thanks to the Prairie Pod for having this special guest takeover. And then, as always, this episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. You can find all of the resources that we talked about today, it's a lot, it's a lot of resources, on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. You can also go there or wherever you access podcasts to get past episodes of the Prairie Pod and just keep that learning and knowledge flowing like the wind through the prairie. We'll be back next week. We can't wait to see you then. Bye, team. Bye. Bye. Bye.